It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to the very first Crash MotoGP podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure to have you along for the ride. Myself, former Grand Prix rider, British champion and commentator Keith Ewan and Crash MotoGP editor Pete McLaren will be here every week throughout the season with all our thoughts on the very latest news. But we want to hear from you as well. Any thoughts and questions you have, let us know. Get in touch on social media on the CrashNet MotoGP channels. But in the meantime, coming up on today's show... We, of course, are looking back at a brilliant weekend of racing in Jerez. Perhaps a bit of a slow burner in MotoGP, but when it burned, we had an absolute thriller with Jack Miller taking the win from Pecco Bagnaia, making it a Ducati 1-2 as Franco Morbidelli muscled his way onto the final step of the podium. We'll be analysing the top three performances along with looking at what went wrong for Fabio Quartararo, who looked to have it all sewn up in the early stages, but it wasn't to be for the Frenchman. We'll also be taking a look at some of the standout performances a little further down the field and some of the not-so-great rides along with a bit of Moto2 and 3 action. And Pete's got all the latest on the Jerez test, uh, which uh, took place on Monday, or as we're recording on a Monday, it is still taking place. So a big first show. Let's get on with it, shall we? And Keith, it would be rude, I think, not to start with our winner, Jack Miller. An emotional win for him, up and down the paddock for everybody watching at home. Uh, brilliant win, wasn't it? And he needed that. Yeah, to find anyone that's going to be up against that particular statement, I've got to say, Harry, I mean, one of the best blokes in the paddock, no doubt about it, really good guy, really down-to-earth guy, his parents, you know, they're good fun around the paddock as well, so there's not going to be any one person that's going to think anything against that. I mean, what a time for Ducati to come up with a 1-2 as well, I mean, absolutely outstanding for them. No one will have predicted that situation. Quattararo, of course, was doing what we thought he would do early on, before we all start to scratch our heads, wondering... What on earth is going on? I was I was right up against the screen trying to see if it was tyres or whatever it was, and everyone was trying to speculate on what was going on with Fabio, whether it was his bike, whether we got a misfire, or even shut up the commentators, I heard, and that's very rare indeed. So they shut up so we could hear the bike just to see if it was misfiring or something. And then I think it was JT who was the first to spot it, James Toesland, who, who, who actually texted in to the, to the BT commentary team to uh, let them know, know what was going on. He cottoned on really early on. Bearing in mind that he's a man that's that suffered arm injuries before, mm. um, and it's a situation that he recognised just a tad earlier than everyone else that, that maybe Fabio was suffering with that arm pump injury. Well, um, what exactly, is, can you explain what exactly is arm pump? What happens to, to the rider's arm? Do you know what? Back in the day, you know, us old blokes got arm pump just like everyone else. It's not a new thing, but we didn't know what it was. I'd wander around all week with a big grip in my hand and a rubber ball, you know, thinking I was a, I was too soft and couldn't ride a 500 Grand Prix bike and I needed to have more muscle. But what I was actually doing was making it a lot worse. You've got a, 
a sheath effectively inside your arm that's got a muscle inside it and the muscle has nowhere to go as it becomes more developed as you use your muscle more obviously it's the right arm that you're gonna have most trouble with most of the time although cal crutch though has had both arms he's had carpal tunnel for both arms he had operations on both arms there's some quite famous names that have had quite tricky work done in modern days but the muscle outgrows and the pressure that it's under i mean they do they do a couple of things it's quite invasive actually to check on the pressure they can test you to see if you've got carpal tunnel syndrome in that they put needles in there to measure the pressure of the fluids and there's a a, a more up-to-date non-invasive surgery well it's not even surgery is it it's an mir scan that they can do and they can check the pressure of your muscle inside the sheath but effectively carpal tunnel what they do slice it down literally that far you know all the way down your arm get in there slit the slit the, the sheath and believe me i don't know whether you scratched yourself harry but it's quite painful um <laughs> and to actually dig in i mean these guys talk about it i've never had it done because we never didn't know what it was in our day yeah. to be honest i mean to be fair lots of people had carpal tunnel syndrome back in the day but nobody knew what it was nowadays they all do but the um, remarkable thing for me is bloody jack miller only had it done the week after the sale so he did the two he recognized that he got a problem so after the two doha races he went straight into surgery had it fixed and the next round in portugal burst all his stitches if you'd see you know you because know, he's grabbing hold of it yeah. and his muscles now trying to force all the stitches because it's not got not got the sheath anymore that's been that's been slit <laughs> so so the guy's bleeding through portugal through portimao i mean i mean i mean breakfast when you're watching this or whenever you're, you're picking up on the squad cast because you <laughs> this is quite yucky but <laughs> he's he had that done immediately after the first two rounds at the sale rode portugal with the thing leaking um and and, and what a track i mean portugal portimao for god's sake it's like you might as well go motocrossing and then we go to to Hereth, which is which is not quite elevation wise as up and down but just as difficult you don't get any breathing points at uh at Hareth either with that tunnel now supposedly cured and look what happens he goes and wins a bloody race i mean remarkable stuff harry you couldn't make it up it was an awesome race to watch but but suppose he did i suppose would you say luck into it because of course we're getting that arm pump but so no I'm not having any of that luck business. <laughs> no, I'm not having any of that luck business ever in in racing. I'm sorry, Harry, but <laughs> but surely, surely he did luck into it because I mean, if Fabio was you know two seconds down the road at one point and growing that pace, yeah, and Mark Marquez fell off last year and we ain't seen him again since. You know, luck is something that I th- I'm afraid that. Um, you know, it, it's the survival of the fittest. Grand Prix racing, it's not about who's not in it. You beat the men that are in the, on the track still. And that, for me, is the is the, the main stat. Mm. You can always say that there have been world championships won in the past without winning a race, you know, in various disciplines. But at the end of the day, you're the man with the hand on the trophy. And, uh, and don't forget, I mean, I don't want my head to get too big for a widescreen, but Where's Bang Noir now in the championship? Excuse me. Yeah, I was, I was, yeah, I was going to mention that a bit later on. Uh, but you brought it up now. But before we get to uh, Keith's pick of the pick of the day, pick of the week, it was. Uh, let's bring Pete in as well, because Pete, what what happens next for Quartararo? Because he obviously had that. What we all found out, and eventually was the arm pump issue. He plummeted back to to thirteenth place. I think he he clung on to for the end for a few points. What happens next for him? Because of course he wasn't at testing today, was he? That's right, Harry. Yeah, he's he's immediately gone to get that that arm looked at. And I mean, 
to be honest, I'd be surprised if he doesn't have surgery because although it's clearly a physical issue, once a top rider suffers from arm pump, it can almost become like a psychological issue in that they, they're then looking for it. Every time they, they're on the bike, you know, if, if, if Fabio's leading again and he had nothing done, it, it would be at the back of his mind, you know, am I going to get arm pump again? And so I think, you know, they need to solve it in some way. As Keith was saying, you know, Jack had the operation. He was a bit secondhand at Portimao, but he was still fast. And then he's won at Jerez. So, you know, he can he can afford to have the operation and still, you know, stay right up there in terms of the championship. And I think that's what will happen. I think we'll see the operation before Le Mans. Absolutely agree, Peter. I think that you know, he's got no choice. You know, they'll, they'll look at it. I mean, that, that arm pump that he had wasn't just a like some of us have had in the past where it starts to go a little bit numb. You can't feel the end of your fingers. It literally is that bad. I mean, when you're on a MotoGP bike, pulling the kind of horsepower they're pulling and the g they're pulling now in braking areas i mean the tires and the like everything nowadays is 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 much more extreme than it was again if we, i'm sorry to keep mentioning my day i know it was in black and white and so long ago but but the point being is that you know it's something that is is right at the front of a rider's mind now you're going to ride a motor gp bike people are even getting it on the triumphs now in moto 2 remember because moto 2 more horsepower more more electronics more stuff going through You've got a lot more to contend with in Moto2 now. You didn't hear much about arm pump in Moto2 a little while ago. Don't hear about it at all, of course, in Moto3 because it's a nice lightweight class. But the fact is, riders are right on the very edge of their physical exertion now, on their, their physical capabilities. No, well, absolutely agree on that. Um, I mean, like you're saying, he can't afford to lose another race like that. I mean, every rider will have one bad race a season. You know, that needs to be Fabio's. He needs to get over it and he needs to move on. You know, he was so dejected on Sunday night talking to us on the Zooms. You know, you could see how disappointed he was. And, you know, he said, I'm, I'm feeling lost. His head was full of emotions of, of, of what had happened in the race, having looked so good. And then all the advice he was getting from everyone, you know, you should go here, you should go there, you should have this done. And he said, look, you know, we need to think about it. I don't want to make the wrong move. And, um, yeah, I think that, you know, unless the doctors find something else, some other reason, but it seems unlikely, you know, that there could have been anything other than the normal arm pump operation will be needed. He's had it before, of course. He had it in 2019. And it'll be a bit of a concern that it's only two years later that he's needing another one. But the scar, the, the scar tissue does grow back. Maybe that's it. Who knows? But I think, you know, he's got to have it done so that, you know, in his mind, he's had the problem, he's fixed it, he can move on. Trouble is with scar tissue as well, Peter, isn't it? It's a situation where that's healing. It all sticks together. It can heal together right. so it can actually negate the problem. You, you, it's, it's, this is a proper operation. This is not something you mess around with, that's for sure. But he's got a long list of people to talk to. I mean, if you look down the list of people that have had arm pump uh, syndrome fixes, it's, you know, Danny Pedrosa had that. Didn't he have the sheath removed completely? I think he had a really controversial um, and situation. Cal, and Cal, yeah. And Cal on both arms. You know, so it's a uh, stoner has had it done as well. I think uh, mm. Stephen Bradley, out of the riders that are out there at the moment, I think he's had it done as well. So, I, I, my, if I was his management, I would be. He would have been into Mia the day after he got back. He'd be straight in there getting it done because there's 15 rounds left to go. Still a long way for him to go. So, uh, well, it's not uncommon, is it? But hopefully, he will. Well, he missed the testing today. Obviously, hopefully, he's flying back to France and he's putting the, those measures in place. Um, Third place man I want to move on to next, Franco Morbidelli. He actually, after he said he wasn't he wasn't really confident he would be able to get on the podium. And I don't know if you've heard, but he's on a two-year-old Yamaha and he's not happy about it, is he, Keith? He certainly isn't, is he? No, I mean, you know, Fra Frankie's known as being an e easygoing, laid-back guy. But, you know, 
I think it's been hard even for him to take to finish title runner-up, top Yamaha, and then watch all of these other guys getting new bits on their bikes. And, you know, he's got basically the same bike. He's got a few little upgrades, but there's only so much he can do. And, um, you know, I think he's found that difficult. It's great that he's got this podium. It, it, it shows him that despite all of that, he can still be competitive. But no doubt he wants a factory bike for next year. I don't feel at all sorry for Frankie Morbidelli because he's got the entire world on his side as it is at the moment. I feel sorry for Razlan Razali. Razlan Razali had a team that he built in, what, three or four months, him and Johan Ziegerfeld and the rest of the team as well, the Petronas you know, Yamaha M1 team, an independent team that didn't even have a workshop to work out. Razlan Razali was doubling up as the CEO of Sepang International you know, Circuit. He had no team under his belt at all. They built that team. They came out of the box with Morbidelli and Quattararo, did a fantastic, fantastic job. Too fantastic because they ended up with the, what I've said before was a likely to be a poison chalice. As it turns out, I'm disappointed in myself being accurate for a change in that Valentino Rossi was basically foisted on them. There was nowhere for him to go. He was a factory Yamaha man. They promised him a proper factory bike in an independent team. That's what he's got. So Morbidelli's looking across the garage. It's quite often that, that old saying, isn't it, in motorbike racing, and, and you hear it often from old racers in that, careful what you wish for. Sometimes a new motorbike doesn't suit you. You can get on a factory, I've done it myself, get on a factory motorbike and you suddenly think, oh, I'm having to try twice as hard to make this work. And trying to work your way around the new bits, the new style, the new angles, yeah. everything that, that works on it is really tricky. But I think in Valentino, well, let's talk about Morbidelli, like you, you first said. I mean, Morbidelli, yeah, he's on the old kit, but it's all tried, tested, got the data, got everything he needs, and nothing really has been that much upgraded from last year because there's been a development freeze from last year. So the same same stuff they've got this year. So the fact is it's not that far behind. It works really well for him. He's got this a bit like a lovely, nice, well-worn in glove that he knows so well. And he picks up the pieces. Places like last weekend, you know, proved it. Morbidelli is more than capable. And his stock value is so high at the moment. Yamaha have either got to look after him at some stage or he's off. Exactly. But and when you look across the garage, uh, does that pile on the pressure hugely for Rossi? Because everyone kept saying, didn't they, that it's okay, it's, you know, Qatar, Portugal, it's okay, it's, it's Jerez where we'll find and, and he'll get his feet and we'll see and we'll see the true pace. That has not happened. The qualifying was awful. He didn't finish in the points. He just didn't get the grip. He didn't like, he just, he's not liking it still. Does that pile on the pressure for him? Is there pressure up against him? Is it too bold to say that if he carries on that way and Morbidelli keeps on scoring these consistent podiums, is he going to, is Rossi going to want to stay on that bike for the rest of the season, given the performances he's doing? <laughs> Do you want to go with that one first, Pete? <laughs> I've, always got, I've always got plenty to say, as you know. So I, th I think you know, he's certainly going to stay on that bike for the rest of the season. I mean, but as he said himself, you know, they're, they're running out of ideas and that's the trouble. And MotoGP is so close now. You know, he finished 22 seconds behind. Mm. I, I was looking back 10 years ago, that would have been sixth place at that same race. You know, everything has got, it's like a spring that's been compressed. You know, the whole grid is so close and you can't afford to make the smallest mistake. And it was as, um, as, as Keith has said before, the problem he's got is this, this rear tire construction is a bit softer now. And it, he just, he's just having trouble with it. He can't, he can't adapt to it in the same way as he did in the past. And, you know, where do you go from here? As you, as you say, what, what more can you do? Um, 
there's a day of testing today, as we're saying. Obviously, they'll be trying things, but you know, certainly Hareth is a track that he's done really well at at the past, and you know, the qualifying was the same as Portimao. The race result was outside the points, so he's basically stuffed. Peter is what you're saying. Um, he's he's on the factory bike. He's 42 years old. Everything's as tight as tight as a duck's what's it, and there is no. There's always respect in the paddock, but the second that lot sniff a bit of blood, whether you're Valentino Rossi or Tito Rabat, either end of the grid, it doesn't matter. Everybody is on their A game. There is, there's no gaps in anything nowadays. Again, you're going to hate me for this, people that tuned into this for the first time. Back in my day, <laughs> you know, you've got like, you've got 10 foot you could make up into a corner. You know, it was a situation... It's just not there anymore. There's not an inch. If you if you run an inch further into a corner, you are going wide. The, the commitment these guys across the field, I, I'm slightly disrespectful towards Tito Ribet, who's a guy that rides a motorbike very, very well. But the fact is he's only a tiny bit off the pace of the front runners, having come back for a for a, a one or two off ride. You know, Valentino's up against it. And it must be torture in his mind. When you get to the end of your career, it's a nightmare because you're recognising it and you know it in your heart and your head. And he's a clever fella that's got every angle worked out over many, 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 many years. He knows he's in massive trouble. And I'll tell you what, I bet he wants to bloody hide under the blanket in the mornings rather than get out on the racetrack with the way things are. It's, it's He's got a situation where he's got... A, a, he's done more for motorcycle racing at this level and any other man, I hear about the good old days and all the rest of it, and obviously there's some, some fantastic names when you go back through a great big long list. But Valentino Rossi is the man. There is no one else that's done more for motorcycle sport than Valentino Rossi. He's taken it global back in the day when it wasn't even a global sport, when we only really went to Europe. We didn't go to half the countries we go to nowadays. Valentino Rossi is the man. And to see him struggling like this, I hate trolls. I hate people that you know, that get on his case and give him shit effectively when he's the greatest man on a motorcycle, has been perhaps now. Um, but don't disrespect him because he he's put us all in the position we're in. We're all getting paid because Valentino Rossi has made it a global thing and all your, you know, your two-faced journos, papers, broadcasters and the like have all got off on the back of Valentino Rossi. And they're all ruined the day. They're all thinking to themselves, Christ, what happens if we lose Valentino Rossi? We're going to lose half our viewers. Nobody really cares about him as well as they should do. But but I do. He's a, he's a, he's a sportsman that you've got to admire. You have got to agree with me, surely, on that one. I don't think anybody could disagree with that, Pete. No, no, absolutely. And I, I was going to say, and that brings us on to you know the news from the weekend of, of his team in MotoGP next year. Probably, Harry, what, what you're... It, it is about what I was just going to suggest. Is that all that news around the new team? And, and we've obviously, I'm sure we'll get into it in a minute, the, the Saudi backing, is it there? Is it not? That can't be helping him, surely. Politics. <laughs> 25 years of being in the sport. He knows what he's doing. And the right. fact he ducked the questions in the press or conference, I mean, I'll, you know, it's almost one of them ones where, yeah, I think, Politically now, we're all we're all aware. I won't say sensitive because that's wrong. We should have all been sensitive about politics, racism, sexism, and all the other bits and pieces that have been going on, sort of below the wire, under the wire for such a long time. Um, it's all to the fore. But then you've got human rights and the like, 
And it's well known that certain places that we go to and certain places, we keep quiet about it. Should we? Probably not. Um, Valentine, well, definitely not in actual fact. I'll go a bit further than that. Probably don't come into it. You know, human rights should be sacrosanct. It should be something that everybody cares about and that everybody takes a stand against. But there always seems to be reasons in governments and the like where they kind of dodge that issue slightly because of funding uh, global benefit that they may have in some way or shape and form. And, and, and Valentino Rossi's team, his management team that he has, and I, this is why I say he dodged it a bit, because he's still the head of the VR46 organisation. Whatever anybody says, you don't bypass the CEO and make a decision like that without him knowing about it. I'm sorry. Um, so it's a situation where should they take the Saudi money? You know, I suppose in a perfect world, no, you shouldn't. Um, but in the world we live in, yes, you will. And yes, he has. Mm. But but also on that, and I, Pete, I, I, I sort of thought I heard rumours or saw, saw in the press as well that they said a deal was done, but then the, I believe it's Saudi Aramco said, no, there isn't a deal in place. We, we have no idea about it. <laughs> It was strange how it was all announced. You know, normally yeah. this kind of thing would come from the team itself, but there wasn't a VR46 press release as such. It it came from uh, Tenal Entertainment and Sports, which represent the, the Aramco side of the deal, apparently. Um, and they also put out a mock-up of a bike that happened to be a Yamaha, which obviously got a lot of interest. Um, and, then, and then Aramco representatives seem to be contacting people going, well, hang on a minute, we, we don't know too much about this. But, I mean, Rossi insisted that, look, the deal is done. They've signed. Um, so he, he certainly seems it's, to believe it's full steam ahead. We don't know much yeah. else about the deal, what the bikes will be, who the riders will be. Um, but that part of the deal, the funding seems to be in place. But yeah, it, it was certainly odd the way that it came from the sponsor and not from the team. Yeah. Well, they're out there, aren't they? They've been involved. You know, they're involved in motorsport generally anyway. I'm, I'm voting for Super League, by the way. I think we should have a Super League <laughs> with motorbikes. Didn't they try that in F1 as well years ago? And that didn't pan out too, too well. <laughs> They've tried everything out in F1. <laughs> that is true. And still, still to this day. Uh, let's move down the grid, though. Uh, to Well, down the grid. Unfortunately, that's where Rossi is. But let's move up then towards the sort of midfield. And I want to briefly touch on a couple of people. Taka Nakagami put on a, a pretty decent display over the weekend. Equal his best ever finish. Came home fourth with a great little nifty move towards the end. Uh, sliding in between Quartararo and uh, Espargaro. Um but is he fighting for his oh. career? <laughs> fighting for his fitness. <laughs> that's true. But so, so that's obviously one obstacle, but he's got to have those more consistent runs, right, in order to, to be here next year. Uh, take a look at the, um, the sheet at the moment. Where is he in the championship and where are the others? 14, 15, 16th are the, are the factory bikes. He's, he's the best of the Hondas. Yeah. So... Um, you could argue that Takanakagami's doing the best job in that. <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, points make prizes and he's got the most of them. Yeah, I mean, Taka was quite emotional, actually, at the end of the race. He didn't realise he was on camera. But, um, yeah, when he was asked about it, he was actually really close to that first podium. And, and the big news technically this weekend for him was that he went back to last year's chassis. And that, you know... He goes well at Jerez anyway. He had good races last year, but that certainly seemed to make a difference for him given those really terrible races he had before Jerez. So, you know, is that the way forward for the Hondas? Uh, you, you know, Paul Espargaro seemed a bit dejected, to put it mildly, mm. saying everyone's got different things, you know, which makes it hard for them to compare between each other. 
So, um, you, I mean, what, what do you think? I think you need to elaborate on that, Peter, because I think that is a major, major issue, isn't it? I mean, the, 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 the very fact that Polis Bargra, I mean, Honda are going to hate that kind of lucid comment. I mean, but haven't you noticed, Peter, in the past, Honda do it their way. There's the Honda way or no way. You know, if you want to move a footrest, if you're a Honda rider, you want to move a footrest, the engineers rule at Honda. They say how it's going to be, and the riders have to work it out around what the engineers say is best for the motorcycle. It's a very, it's almost like there's a disconnect between rider and engineers sometime back in the factory. And to run, I wonder if running four different setups is desperation rather than a, a coordinated package to try and get them to the to the best end yeah i mean we've, we've seen ktm when they've been in trouble at a race kind of spread the work out between their riders haven't we and they've all kind of worked together as a team gone right each of you try something different on day one then they all kind of report back and then they they, they sort of go with whichever they think works best but but this doesn't seem to be that this this doesn't work in that it's it's individuality as as, as paul was saying that they're each kind of doing their own thing without there being that kind of central control over it, of, of being able to then share the progress that, that, that one of them might make, um, you know. Yeah, the trouble is, the progress that was made so often belonged to Mark Marquez. And if you remember all the comments that Cal Crutchlow would say, I'd look at his data and there's no way I could ride a motorbike like that. You know, it's a situation where the data that came back from the alien that is Mark Marquez, that, that no other rider, yeah, they could understand the data. They could see what he was doing in the data, but that no one else could do it. The amount of front wheel lockups he had all the time was uh, was just incredible. Um, and Cal always used to say, yeah, we, we've got free access to Mark's data, but, but you might as well might as well be a blank sheet of paper because you can't work off it. <laughs> and um, Exactly. You know, and the other thing is maybe that I think we all thought that Mark was being held back physically. You know, that, that it was all a matter of Mark getting the strength back. But maybe, you know, after these accidents this weekend, part of the gap has got to be come from the bike. You know, Mark's missed all of last season, all of the testing. And it seems like from, from the way that the, the Honda development is split at the moment, that they're not clear on what they should do. And, and you know, part of that route of getting Mark to the top is not just going to be Mark. I mean, I think we thought, well, Alex was on the podium last year twice. So Mark will win, right? But then, you know, at the start of this year, Alex has had a, Alex hasn't continued that rise, has he? It's been a lot harder and Nakagami until now, and so maybe there's, you know, there's going to be two sides to the Marquez story, the Mark Marquez story. One of which is going to be the fitness, obviously, but another one is going to be can he sort the bike out to, to how he needs it. Mm. Uh, on things move on so fast, don't they? That's the situation. Clearly, a lot of work to do for those guys. But on Marquez, Keith, uh, he had a bit of a, a bit of a turbulent weekend. You think you know quite a few offs, and and actually, you know, it brought up the whole question of is Jerez still a suitable track for these Moto G bikes, uh, GP bikes? How do you think Marquez got on overall? I mean, he tested all the things he needed to test, didn't he? Physically, um, mm. chucking it away the like he did twice. Um, they were quite big, big offs, and yeah, the barriers are getting a bit closer nowadays because bikes are traveling velocity wise in the middle of the corners quite quick mm. um i mean track safety is a is an ongoing issue that people look at every you know the safety commission look at every friday it will be comments it'll be brought up and there'll be be comments made and it will be dealt with because dorna do deal with things i mean i have the utmost respect for dorna and the way that they they move these things on um mark's performances I mean, he's struggling. Clearly, he's struggling. He's struggling with the bike. He's struggling with his fitness. I mean, he looks awkward on the motorbike as well. You know, these subtleties, 
you know, the, we talked about Quadraro earlier on with that arm pump. You could just about see that he was slightly different in the way that he was entering into a corner. But it was so subtle, it was difficult to work out. And yet he was in real trouble. He was he could hardly hold onto the bike. Mark is a similar instance. He is on a motorbike now in a completely different way. First time he got on it, I remember thinking, oh, that looks really awkward. You know, his body language, if you like, was... He just had everything slightly in a different place. Um, and when you're of a motorcycle racer of his uniqueness, you know, they make that stuff makes a lot of difference. He's not riding like someone else. Mark Marquez is unique in the way he rides. Him out. He's forced everyone else to try his style. It's a, it's a, it's a really unusual situation. When you think you know everything about riding a motorbike, you go around around the corner as fast as you can and you're breaking, you know, trail breaking into, into turns and the like, you think you've got it all worked out. And then Mark Marquez pops up on the scene and he does stuff like you've never seen before. Now, how does he do that? Joao Mir in Moto3 was the same thing. He did stuff that, that most Moto3 riders had never seen done, braking particularly, using so much rear braking in a Moto3 bike, which most people didn't bother at the time. Mm. So many things that these guys, innovators, discover. Valentino Rossi, I mean, the way they smudge the throttle and the front brake at the same time to keep the front loaded. What? The first thing you would ever do, you would I'd never have the front brake on and the throttle, but but nowadays just keep the front loaded. There's a little bit of brake on still while you're on the throttle. I mean it's like sounds like amateur hour, but it's absolutely incredible what these guys are discovering, the tiny incremental differences that they make in their riding style. And the Marquez is able to do that. And while his body is still slightly awkward and while he can't do what he wants, place himself on the bike, he'll work round it. But two big, big crashes, that has that has really been like a cold bucket of water over the head, I would think, for Mark. I mean, yeah, and actually, Pete, it brought up the whole question around, you know, uh, the idea of the, the concussion uh, uh, sort of uh, protocols in in MotoGP as well. You know, he he was declared fit, but then there was a little bit of, you know, he was just showing signs that was he actually could he could he go that fast? <laughs> Keith, I feel like you've got you've got a opinion on that as well. <laughs> well, let Pete answer his question first. I think Sorry, I have got a lot on that because that annoyed me like hell. There, bro. yeah. So obviously, he you know he had the, he had the big accident. He went to the medical center. He was checked out. I think they basically said you're okay. He went back to his motorhome, and then he said he started feeling a bit kind of woozy. I think he, he said that he was felt like he was losing his head a bit. Was how he described it. So, and then he said playing it safe. He called up the doctor, and and said, look, this is how I'm feeling. And they said, right, let's let's get you checked at the local hospital. Um, I, I think, and obviously Keith will know a lot more about this, but concussion is a hard one to diagnose, isn't it? He went to the hospital. He had lots of scans, but there's no scan that will tell you automatically you've had a concussion. So, I mean. Yeah, he was passed as fit to race, but you do you do always fear when a rider says that they they have that kind of feeling, don't you? It's a nightmare, and the protocols aren't there. And I've been banging this drum for a long time. You know, it's just it is wrong that riders are put in a position where, of course, they want to ride. They'll ride with one arm. You know, the fact is is that you won't stop a rider. It was Petrucci. Did he get wiped out? I can't remember where he got wiped out now. Somebody took him down as he came out through pit lane. And um, when we spoke to him later in the day, he couldn't remember the rest of the day. And I remember thinking, huh? And he'd gone out and done another couple of sessions in between the, the, the clattering he'd had. And I remember bringing this up with a, with a, with a high up person at trackside. I won't say which organization, but. And I said, I said, what do you want us to do? Do you want us to test everybody for, for, for possible concussion? I said, yeah, that's exactly what you need to do. It, it, there needs to be more than just a protocol showing a light in the bloke's face, you know, 
and say, oh, yeah, both eyes are opening and shutting and, you know, it's not too dilated. And uh, it's not, yeah, we are, this is 2021. Hmm. And I'm sorry, there should be no room for any doubt in this. I mean, uh, kids football, they're talking about not allowing kids of a certain age to practice headers. You know, we're talking uh, IndyCar, NASCAR. They have now a situation where a little light comes on when you've had the red light and you've pulled too many G when you've hit the floor and the, the, the old helmet shows that the, that's it, you're out. You're out for whatever the, the period is that they've deemed the right amount of time that you should spend away. We should have that in motorcycle racing. Motorcycle racing is more than dangerous enough without worrying about whether you've had a bang in the head and you're feeling a bit dizzy when you go out on a bloody 225-mile-an-hour motorbike. It's just wrong. I don't understand it because I think that our sport is proactive in just about everything. They've been really, really, really good over with with rules and regulations. They've, they've done a very, very, very good job in getting us where we are now. Let's not fall behind on on the physical side of things, on the on the technical side of things, from a medical perspective. I mean, there, are, I mean, there must, there must be doctors at home that, that, that wince when they see a rider that that, that falls down, does a three hundred and sixty degree through the bashing everybody bit that sticks out. And then he gets up and the next thing you see him pushing his bike out of gravel and he's got it started and he's riding back around again. I mean, uh, doesn't want to be over the top, but it does need to be a protocol in place, a proper, either a mechanism where they can tell how much your head has moved, how mm. fast your head has moved. We have that technology. It's out there. Why is that not being implemented in the helmets, in the suits, whatever it might be? Those algorithms are really important to understand them and to be able to translate them into what we must do with a rider if his body has gone through that particular uh, situation. Well, hopefully that that does start to pick up pace in terms of people talking about it and actually implementing it. Um, now, we are very quickly running out of time, but we cannot not talk about Keith's pick, his favourite, Banyaya. What an absolute... Uh, well, leading the championship, absolutely stellar uh, weekend from him. Pecco, I, I think with me, I, I mean, I, I like a bit of a dark horse. I mean, it's not that I, I, I never go for the obvious one. The obvious one was Quattararo for sure. Yeah. And, 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 and Pecco Magnaia, he had a really good ride there last year before he went and threw it up the street. And and he's just looking like that, like I say, like a dark horse. He's just that guy that's, that's emerging at the moment. He's on a factory Ducati. You know, he got beaten by his teammate. If it had been the other way around, there might have been a little bit of embarrassment going Jack's way. But, um, I mean, a one-two for Ducati. Yeah, Pecco Bagnaia leads the series. Um, I won't use the word luck like um, a little earlier on. <laughs> but, yeah, there, there, there is always an element of luck in, in, in life. But um, uh, Bagnaia leading the series, I think he'll take that as far as it is at the moment. Even though he's, uh, he's a good guy, I don't think he'll be leading it by... Um, for very much longer. I think everyone's going to be digging themselves in and uh, by the time we go to Le Mans, the next one and the like, it's going to be it, all changed. Yeah, it is. Oh, no, I haven't said that. Ducati's good at Le Mans. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll, we'll, have to, uh, we'll have to wait and see on that one. But before we uh, we round things up, we've got to have a look at uh, Moto2 and Moto3. And actually, I'm going to just focus on Moto3 for this one because... No, we've got to talk Moto2 as well, Harry. I, I'm fine. Okay. Saying. All right. Fine. Oh, yep. Yeah, that's true. Come on. Let's start with Moto2 then. Come on. Sam Lowe's third in Moto2. Uh, he said actually it was a, a massive weight lifted, wasn't it, for him? Uh, uh, what, what, what's, what does the future look like for him? And, and how good was that result over the weekend? Sam, he, um, for me, he looked like the old Sam, out of control, yeah. making the wrong decisions in the first few laps, all over the bloody place, rushing up the inside. And then the new Sam kicked in and he just 
slotted back a little bit, worked it all out. Probably one of his best races he's ever had, in my view. Pete? That's why we got. Yeah, I think I think Sam's riding the best in his career now. I think that um, you know he was fighting for the title last year. He's right up there again this year, and um, you know it would be great to see if he can get another chance in MotoGP on a more competitive bike. And then uh, let's go down to Moto3, though. Acosta winning again. Uh, Keith, the kid's special, isn't he? KTM need to lock him down if they yeah, haven't I mean, done it already. Yeah, yeah, don't worry. There'll be a few people trying to do that right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's something everybody's working on. Uh, I mean, like, it's, the, it's not the fact he does it. It's the way he does it. You know, he's 16 years old, but he has such fantastic racecraft. He, he has stuff worked out. It, you see that in some riders. Very rarely do you see that in riders. You know, most of these guys are brilliant at what they do. They absolutely understand, you know, their motorcycle, themselves, you know, how to go about it. But they don't quite position themselves in the right place to pick off those final few laps and make it count. But three wins in the second place. In the, you know, what's he got? A 51-point lead at the moment. Yeah. Mm. And, and when he talks, you know, he talks like he's older than me. He really does, doesn't he? Because Pete, he's got he, uh, he's 16. He wasn't even allowed to, to drink the Prosecco or the champagne on the podium. He's got such a, a strong head on him, hasn't he? An old head on young shoulders. He has. And, that, and that's something that you see with all the top guys in MotoGP, if you like. I, I think, you know, Juan Mir, Mark Marquez, when they first came into the class, you know, you know they behaved, they acted as if they'd been there for ages, you know, and it, it's, it is, it's, it's a good sign and it's something rare that you see in a Moto3 rider, as you say. So, I mean, you know, all the ingredients are there for him to be a real star of the future. Yeah. It makes it tough for everyone else, that's for sure. You imagine British riders looking in and seeing how good this kid is at 16 <laughs> years old. But it's, they're not going to be happy. And I, I feel like it's almost going to be every, every week we're saying, you know, is he going to be in MotoGP next year? Well, I, I think that I work on a three-year plan when it comes to riders opinions on riders i think the first year you can i mean what we've got to remember is he's been at a, a grand prix style class already you know he might be 16 but i mean the, the cv system brings up world world class riders from a very very early age but this year he's on the crest of a wave at the moment he's making it all work out real well next year is always a, a slight problem making it work for two years and then your third year you work out whether someone is really really heading for greatness I wouldn't want to see him go to, you know, Jack Miller took a long time to get over going from Moto3 to MotoGP. Right. So a lot of things to work out. And I think that now that Moto2 is closer to MotoGP in performance and technology, you know, Triumph and the Moto2 class have done a great job. I think that it's it's a good place to go. Moto2 is a good place to go. Whereas the old Hondas, you know, thankful to Honda for providing unburstable motors for God knows how long. But they were horrible things, really, weren't they? They were just flat with no power and... You know, everything was on the chassis and, and, and it just wasn't the, that width of parameter to work with as a rider. But now there really is. If you train in Moto2 now, you are training as a MotoGP rider mm. rather than having that little stopgap between the two. Right. Uh, he really is a rising star, isn't he, Pete? He is. Yeah, absolutely. And as Keith said, I think you, you'd want him to do at least probably two years in Moto2, ideally. Um, I think talking to the, the guys that have just moved up to MotoGP for Moto2, they seem to, as Keith was saying, really feel like the Triumph bikes with the electronics that they've got now. It's, it's just helped bridge that gap that was there before. You know, it was a bit much of a shock before going from the 600 Honda to the 1000cc MotoGP bike with all of the complexity that they have. And, and that's the, the gap is, is obviously still there, especially the tyres. But 
you know, it's smaller, it's doable. And uh, yeah, you know, if he can build on the Moto3, couple of good years in Moto2 and then hit the big time. Mm. I think we'll be talking about him a lot uh, this year. And he's such a nice guy as well. He even managed to wish his, uh, his mum a happy Mother's Day on the cameras. So uh, that was uh, very nice of him. Um, that's uh, <laughs> really tugs on the hearts, Jinx, isn't it, Keith? Uh, <laughs> let's go back to uh, to MotoGP now as we round things out. Uh, and obviously, we're recording this on a Monday. They're testing there today, Pete. Uh, what, what, what can you tell us from testing? Can we really learn a lot? I know it still hasn't quite finished yet, but can we really learn a lot from this test? Yeah, I mean, the problem with Monday tests is that there's so much rubber on the track from the race that there's always loads of grip so the bikes behave differently and you know maverick vernales was fastest this morning but you know he'd be the first one to say that high grip conditions are not his big problem you know it's the lower grip conditions that they struggle with and um you know but nonetheless being fast is being fast but yeah he was fastest this morning then alex rins took over i think rins and mir were trying the 2022 prototype engine again that was first tried in Qatar at the test, as well as some general setup stuff. Uh, and then Maverick's gone back on top, you know, heading into the last few hours here. So, you know, guys that, that didn't have the best result on the race weekend are now fast on the Monday, but of course there's no points on a Monday. Yeah, and the trouble is as well with Hareth, as you really touched on there, is that the fact is from day to day that track changes. You only need a few degrees of difference in, in uh, ambient temperature to make a difference in track temperature and, uh, you know, you could be half a second out compared with before. But the one point you did make about Maverick Vignale is, yeah, he's fastest, but he's put a bloody lot of work in. The last time I'd look, he'd done some 80 laps already today when I looked at the sheet just a, just a few moments before we started doing this. Um, so he's working through whatever program him and his side of the garage have got and again, right going back to the beginning of this conversation, it's the tiniest things they're looking for. It's the tiniest, tiniest stuff. Just trying to make a breakthrough. And if they can line up one or two of them, then it would have been worth it on a Monday. Mind you, don't expect too much from Jack Miller, I should think. He must be living on a cloud of air at the moment. <laughs> I'd rather be down the pub than uh, doing a test day after I just won the Grand Prix. A slight headache for him, maybe. Well, look, gents, uh, we're going to have to leave it there for this week. I think it will become a bit of a repetitive theme, won't it? Where it's near on impossible to cover everything we want to. Uh, but never fear, there may be no Grand Prix this weekend, but we will be back again in a week's time with a brand new show. So make sure you join us for that. Until then, though, you can keep up to date with all the latest news on Crash.net and make sure you hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review if you like it. But in the meantime, uh, a huge thanks to Pete McLaren and Keith Hewan. And of course, I've been Harry Benjamin and we'll see you for the next one to discuss all things Le Mans and all the latest news stories. We'll see you then. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. <laughs> 